What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's 2010 in Bradford, West Yorkshire. One man's sick wish for recognition is about to be realized. Student Stephen Griffiths returns home with a female companion. Seconds later, she's seen on security footage running for dear life away from his apartment. It was absolutely astonishing. Very seldom is murder captured on camera. Griffiths, now seen with a crossbow, chases after her and shoots her before dragging the girl back inside his apartment. She is never seen alive again. A psychopath with a history of violence and an alarming amount of homicidal knowledge, Griffiths will later begin referring to himself as the crossbow cannibal and confess to the murder of two other local women. To back up his new name, he will even claim to have eaten parts of his victims. He's dismembered the bodies, he's taken pictures of them. This is somebody who's quite comfortable around death. The concept that he gave himself a nickname, he wanted the celebrity of being a serial killer. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Stephen Griffith's The Crossbow Cannibal. It was a highly publicized case that shocked and frightened all of England. In what would later come to be known as the Bradford Murders, this student with an obsession for serial killers took the lives of three women all across an 11-month period between 2009 and 2010. But Stephen Griffith's story begins 40 years before, on Christmas Eve 1969, in the town of Dewsbury in West Yorkshire. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes that Griffiths had a seemingly normal life. There doesn't appear to be anything really out of the ordinary in terms of the, the family that Stephen Griffiths comes from. Author and journalist Cyril Dixon believes the change came about with the separation of Griffiths' parents. He had two very sort of caring, loving parents, a stable marriage. Um, they were moving up in the world, you know, good, solid Yorkshire folk. But then it all went pear-shaped. Now, I think that happened when Stephen's parents, Moira and Stephen Sr., split up. Like most children, Griffiths didn't take the separation well, and his behavior started to change. We know from listening to some of the reports of people he went to school with, his peers, they've reported that he was a bit of an oddball. He was slightly strange. He would collect hunting knives, and he would talk about violence in a way that other children wouldn't. He became very, very withdrawn, very, very difficult to get on with, very disengaged. But also, he was observed being sadistic towards animals. Um, in the back garden of the house, neighbours saw him um, shooting birds and dismembering them. When we look at uh, serial killers who have been abusive towards animals when they were children, that is indicative of somebody who is trying to gain control. So they turn their attentions to creatures that they can will power over, and often that's small animals. 
I think those early indicators were there, but he certainly didn't come from the, the hugely dysfunctional background that we see other serial killers come from. Despite his increasingly disturbing behavior, Griffiths was a smart child, and his father worked hard to send him to private school in Wakefield. He went to private school, um, and I think that gave him a kind of veneer of respectability. Had he been a young lad at a badly performing school in a, a deprived area, I think perhaps his behavior would have been problematized much earlier. He would have been on the radar of, of police and social services and agencies like that much earlier. But I think social class and middle classness provides a bit of a protective layer for some people who go on to commit murder and serial murder, because we, we don't want to think of middle-class kids as to go on and do things like that. In 1986, at the age of 16, Griffiths dropped out of school, and it wasn't long before the disturbed teen started causing problems and getting in trouble with the law. He was trying to steal some goods from the supermarket in Leeds. When the supermarket manager tried to stop him, he produced a knife and slashed him across the face. The wounds were so severe that the victim needed 19 stitches. Griffiths was arrested and spent a year in juvenile detention. When he was released, he seemed to want a fresh start in life and enrolled in a psychology course at the University of Bradford. But he was soon in trouble again. In 1989, Griffiths was arrested for possessing an offensive weapon, an air gun, and sentenced to 100 hours of community service. He got into further trouble when he felt he'd been slighted by some fellow students, female students at the uh, college he studied at. He went up to them, four girls, produced a knife, held the knife to the throat of one of the young girls and asked her very menacingly what she thought she was laughing at. Understandably, the girl was terrified. He didn't actually attack her, but it was clearly a serious offence. This time, authorities had enough. Griffiths was sentenced to two years in prison. During this time, he spent eight weeks at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire, where the psychology student's behavior was assessed by a professional. The psychiatrist described him as a sadistic schizoid psychopath. He said he seemed to um, relish the very idea of killing and maiming people and really made it absolutely clear that he had a personality disorder which would make him a very, very dangerous man indeed. Psychopaths are people who are essentially emotionally empty. They don't have the same range of complex feelings that the rest of us do. They tend to lack remorse. They, they have a, a shallow affect, a kind of a shallowness of feeling. They are prone to boredom. There's a need for kind of stimulation all the time. They can't feel real empathy for other people, so there's an inability to put themselves in someone else's shoes. So it's that kind of coldness, and that kind of detachment from feelings and from empathy, really. After his short time at Rampton Secure Hospital, Griffiths was moved to Leeds Prison, where he reportedly talked openly to his fellow inmates about murder. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell knows Griffiths was already making plans for his future. Griffiths was a troubled young man. He certainly had a very active fantasy life. He confessed that he fantasized about killing and that he was sure he was going to kill numerous times before he was 40. Griffiths was eventually released and continued on with his education, working on his psychology degree. Despite his ongoing criminal problems, 
the 24-year-old graduated in 1993. Now in the outside world, he continued to outwardly display his desire for some form of societal recognition. He had this habit of dressing up rather like a cinema villain with a large dark leather trench coat. And he walked a, a pet lizard on a lead. He was not exactly a commonplace figure in Bradford, which I think rather appealed to him. He was a, a vain man, as well as being deeply troubled. Stephen Griffiths had a fair number of, uh, of girlfriends and female acquaintances who initially were, were taken in by his charm, quite liked the way he looked, quite liked the fact that he appeared quite clever, quite well-educated, but eventually they would get tired of him because he was very much a controlling character. In 1998, age 29, Griffiths met a woman named Zita Pinder. Me and my friend was looking through a Lonely Hearts column, and she said, oh, let's just see if we can find you another one. I'm like, no, because it's full of psychopaths. There were an advert saying, 20-odd-year-old male, um, learning to be a counsellor, and I thought, oh, fine, I'll give him a ring. Unaware of his previous convictions and violent history, Zita decided to meet Griffiths in a pub. It looked like a goth. He had really long black hair, um, all greased up, really long black leather jacket, and he gave me a photograph of himself, and he talked a lot about himself. The time that I went out with him, he was really kind and caring, very loving, wanted to hold my hand when we went out, very tactile, just, yeah, really loving. After about two years in this relationship, things changed. Zita had found out he'd been lying to her the whole time. Nearly two years down the line, we were in Bradford having a drink, and he said, oh, I'm just going to nip to my flat for something. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to nip to your flat for something? You live with your mum and dad. It was like he'd got himself in a corner. And he went, oh, yeah, I've got a flat. And I'm like, oh, well, let's go see it. So he's like, all right, so we finished his drinks, and then it, it was just right, literally around the corner in, like, this big complex. I mean, why would you say, oh, I live with my parents when you've got a flat? Zita Pinder was about to meet the real Stephen Griffiths. I never felt threatened until I went in his flat. While he was opening the door, his exact words were, oh, next door, we won't, we won't go around next door. And I'm like, why? He said, oh, because a woman got killed outside there. I said to him, oh, my God, how can you live there when a woman's being killed there? And he's just like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I always remember it had a little side table with a, a little white kettle on. And he's like, oh, sit down, I'll make you a cup of tea. And I sat down and I saw this big, huge bookshelf. And it was just rows and rows of, like, horror books. If they want one nice book, not one and just all on, like, Moore's Murders, Yorkshire Ripper. And above the bookshelf was two samurai swords, one going that way and then one going that way. And on the floor, he had, like, crossbows. And he's like, oh, I'll make a cup of tea. And I'm like, actually, I feel a bit sick. Can we just go home? Can you just take me home? I just feel really sick. Zita was shocked and frightened of Griffith's hidden life and abruptly left the apartment. The following day, she ended the relationship. Zita had a lucky escape. By 2004, Stephen Griffiths, now a diagnosed schizoid psychopath, was well known to the police. He had three convictions for causing grievous bodily harm, disturbing the peace by fighting, and possessing illegal weapons. He was fascinated with crime and murder. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley finds that even his role models are particularly strange. 
I think Stephen Griffiths uh, you know, picked the most bizarre role models. Most young men will be looking to actors or footballers or, or, or musicians, but Stephen Griffiths was looking to Peter Sutcliffe, the, the Yorkshire Ripper. And I think it was the notoriety attached to, to Peter Sutcliffe that, that Griffiths found quite appealing. This was somebody who already had a, a taste for violence, a taste for cruelty. Despite his criminal misdemeanors, 35-year-old Griffiths continued on with his degree in psychology and eventually enrolled in a PhD course at the University of Bradford. I think for Stephen Griffiths, being a PhD student offered, offered him the, the ideal cover to, to basically talk about and research and get obsessed with, with the things that, that he was obsessed with. I think it gave a kind of veneer of legitimacy and respectability to something that was highly dysfunctional. Author and journalist Cyril Dixon notes that even in his downtime, Griffiths had an obsession with homicide and violence. His thesis title was Homicide in an Industrial City, and he specialised on lethal violence in the late Victorian period. But at the same time, in his home, he had this library of books, magazines, videos, all about um, murder, torture, mass killings, anything really which fed that obsession he had with violence and killing and maiming people. I think it was because he didn't have very much in the way of boundaries around that type of behaviour, and he just wanted to absorb himself in it. For Griffiths, it was very much about him. It was very much about what he could achieve by doing this, this sort of thing. So he was kind of an apprentice serial killer. And The Apprentice was now finally ready to try out everything he had learned. On June 22, 2009, a local Bradford woman, 43-year-old Susan Rushworth, had just been reported missing. She had three children. She'd grown up locally um, with a very respectable, very loving family. But like a lot of girls who ended up working in the street, she'd somehow become involved in drugs. The suggestion was that she'd had a marriage split, she'd suffered depression, and she'd got in with the wrong crowd. Before long, she was taking heroin. Before long after that, the only way of paying uh, for the heroin habit was to sell her body on the streets. Susan was trying to overcome her drug addiction. She was still in touch with her family. They loved her, they looked after her. She was still in touch with her children. And, you know, there were often signs that she was turning a corner. One Monday, June 2009, she was due to meet a friend and she just did not turn up. And the family waited however long it was worthwhile waiting before reporting her to the police. The police made an appeal for information. They found out nothing. They scoured everywhere. They checked CCTV footage. They tried to find her mobile telephone. They found not a trace. Records showed that Susan's credit cards hadn't been used since the day she disappeared. Her family launched a public appeal without success. Police combed through the local area, including Susan's last known address. But it seemed like she'd vanished without a trace. Ten months passed, and Susan Rushworth was still nowhere to be found. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell explains that in this line of work, sometimes these women disappear. A missing prostitute is not particularly unusual. It happens a lot. They disappear to other cities, they give up. Then on April 26, 2010, a very similar missing persons report was filed in Bradford. This time it's um, Shelley Armitage. She's 31, she's a very pretty looking girl. 
She had aspirations to be a model. She had lots of friends. She had a boyfriend who loved her. She grew up locally with a family who very much loved her. That said, she was also a heroin addict. She'd also ended up selling her body on the streets in order to pay for her habit. She arranges to meet a friend one night in Rebecca Street, which is a street in Bradford's red light area. They have a bite to eat, a drink, they go their separate ways, and then Shelley just vanishes off the face of the earth like Susan before her. Detectives conducted a detailed search near Shelley's home, but they found no clues. They did, however, discover security footage from the night she went missing. It was a video of Shelley walking in the heart of the red light district right before the disappearance. Still, the police had no leads on neither the disappearance of Shelley nor Susan Rushworth. As they continued to investigate, in May, a third woman disappeared, 36-year-old Suzanne Blamires. Her father was uh, a local businessman. She went to a good school. Basically, she had everything going for her. She wanted to build a career in nursing, and everything was going very, very well until, like the two other women who'd vanished before her, she became involved in the drug scene. She became hooked on heroin, and eventually she resorted to prostitution to pay for her habit. She was working the patch in the early hours of Saturday, May the 22nd, 2010. Few of the women were aware of the fact that she was there. Friends knew that she was there. Friends expected her to return home after work in the early hours of Sunday morning. But again, she vanished. This time, the police didn't have to wait too long for a lead. Two days after Suzanne Blameyer's disappearance, they received information that security cameras had caught something distressing in a nearby apartment complex, the home of Stephen Griffiths. So everything becomes clear less than 48 hours after Suzanne's disappearance when the caretaker at Homefield Court, the block of flats where Griffiths lives, is reviewing the uh, CCTV footage for the weekend. He's looking at the footage taken from the, the camera outside Griffiths' um, flat. It's a Monday morning. Like any other Monday morning, he's just sort of sleepily winding his way through this, uh, this film. And then all of a sudden he sees this figure emerging from Griffiths' flat, running, pursued by this figure, which he immediately recognizes as Griffiths, carrying what looks like a crossbow. The figure, captured running for her life, was missing woman Suzanne Blamires. He took her to his flat. She quite quickly, I think, realized that she was in grave danger and ran out. You see Griffiths chasing after her. You see him shooting at her with a crossbow. You then see him dragging her back into his apartment by her legs. And that wasn't where it ended, because afterwards, he comes up to the camera, he sticks his middle finger up to the camera, and he brandishes the crossbow. In a kind of defiant, angry gesture towards the camera and anybody else who might be looking at him. After viewing the footage, police immediately raced to the scene of the attack, hoping Suzanne Blameyers might still be alive. Armed police officers turn up at Homefield Court. They storm up the stairs, storm into Stephen Griffiths' flat, expecting really some resistance. Stephen Griffiths just gives himself up meekly. 
Griffiths was immediately arrested and taken to Halifax Police Station. Suzanne Blameyers, though, was nowhere to be seen. For some, the audacity of fame-obsessed Griffiths to commit such a heinous act on camera was no surprise. I would say the reason Griffiths was perfectly prepared for his actions to be caught on camera was that he actually wanted to be caught, actually wanted the celebrity that he'd been seeking all along. And after all, if he hadn't been caught on camera, he could perfectly well have gone on killing other prostitutes in Bradford and concealing their bodies. With Griffiths in custody, local police began to search the crime scene and surrounding area for any clues leading to the location of Suzanne Blameyer's body. While being interviewed, Griffiths admitted to killing her. However, he refused to tell police what he'd done with her body. They soon found out. Just one day after Griffith's arrest, a local resident found a backpack in nearby River Air, just five miles from Griffith's home. Inside the backpack was Suzanne Blameyer's head. It still had the crossbow bolt sticking out of it. Obviously, he's terrified, calls police. Police go along, recover the bag, conduct a further search of the river, find other body parts. They turn out to be those of Suzanne Blameyers. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains how crime scenes like these are usually handled. Once remains are found, if the case appears suspicious as a dismembered body in a bag would be, then the area is cordoned off, the scene of crime team come in, the detectives come in, Quite often at that point, the pathologist's called to come and give an initial assessment. Police divers searched the river and found a makeshift toolkit that could have been used to dismember the body. News of the gruesome discovery soon broke across the country, and the public watched the coverage as the divers searched for anything else that could bring them answers. Soon, police were able to piece together exactly what had happened to Suzanne Blameyers from the evidence found in Griffith's flat. After killing her, he dismembered her body in his bathroom. He then placed the remains in a backpack and left his apartment. There were also some clothes belonging to Suzanne which were found in a bin a short walk away from Homefield Court. And there was extensive CCTV footage of Stephen Griffiths making a journey with holdalls, which he admitted were full of body parts, to the nearest railway station and he then caught the train up to Shipley, and it was there that he dumped the body part in the river. As the search of the river air continued, back at Halifax Police Station, detectives had another breakthrough during their interviews with Griffiths. Without prompting, he brought up the names of the other missing women, Susan Rushworth and Shelley Armitage. He says he's killed all three missing women, plus a number of others, but Although he admits the crimes, he, he's, you know, less than fulsome in the detail that he gives them, and they're left feeling confused as to when, whether they should believe him or not. I think he was confessing to the murders that, that he admitted to, because that was also part of his performance. At this point in time, he's playing the role of this damaged perpetrator. He's really aware of serial killers. He's read about a lot of them. He's read about the, the types of things that are going to get them what they want when they are caught. So I think he's giving a little bit in order to get something back for himself. It's very difficult to understand precisely the horrific fantasy 
that he was living out. It was clearly to do with control. It was also clearly to do with his own obsessions. Griffiths idolized serial killers, especially Peter Sutcliffe, known as the Yorkshire Ripper, who was convicted of bludgeoning 13 women to death with a hammer in the 1970s. Just like Sutcliffe, Griffiths targeted prostitutes. Local sex workers were shocked to hear that Griffiths could be responsible for killing all three of the missing women. According to some of the women, Griffiths would frequently interact with them, offering brief conversation and the occasional cigarette. They just couldn't believe that the seemingly polite man was a murderer. I think there are multiple reasons for Stephen Griffiths targeting sex workers. They will willingly go with you. They will go to your house. They will get into your car. So they were easier prey for, for Stephen Griffiths because he was essentially a predator. On May 27, 2010, Stephen Griffiths was charged with the murders of Suzanne Blamires, Shelley Armitage, and Susan Rushworth. Although Griffiths bragged to detectives that he'd killed many more, they didn't believe him. With the charges, investigators needed to build a case against him. And as divers continued to search the river air for more evidence, they found 81 more body parts. Locals were horrified. DNA tests later revealed that some of the remains did not belong exclusively to Suzanne Blamires. Parts of human tissue belonged to Shelley Armitage. Griffiths had already confessed to her murder, but this was the first physical evidence that linked him to her death. As the media broke the news that Stephen Griffiths would be charged with three counts of murder, one viewer was left completely stunned as she saw the familiar face come across her television screen. I was sat watching television with my husband and I just saw his face on the telly. And I was like, I know him. And David's like, no, you don't. I'm like, yeah, I do, I know him. I used to go out with him. I'm like, oh, God, has he died? You know? And then when it had said what he'd done, I, I just was physically sick. Years earlier, Zita Pinder had seen Stephen Griffith's dark side. But now the world was learning about him and his online alter ego, then Pariah, who he described as a misanthrope who brought hate into heaven. It was revealed just hours before murdering Suzanne Blamires, Griffiths had written on his social media feed, then Pariah has finally emerged into this world. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes that just by taking a look at his social media, anyone could see that there was something seriously wrong with this man. Stephen Griffiths was very much a narcissist and he wanted to perform this very kind of exaggerated persona online, then pariah. And it's something that indicates to me this is somebody who is using this as a performance prop, essentially. We can be different people online and offline, but for me, what I found in my work is there's much more continuity than there is change when we look at, at people's behavior online and offline. So I think this was an indication. This was somebody who, who wasn't quite normal. But that wasn't all. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel explains why Griffiths stuck out so much. British serial killers are often mundane, commonplace men. They do not like to draw attention to themselves. They don't care to be apart from the crowd. They want to merge in with the crowd. Griffiths is a signal 
exception to that rule. Despite having found remains of Suzanne Blaymeyers and Shelley Armitage, police had found no evidence of Susan Rushworth. In a cold-blooded act, Stephen Griffiths, though admitting to her murder, refused to tell the police what he'd done with her body. Griffiths took some pleasure in leading the police a little bit of a dance, which was also designed, of course, to make him more famous. Forensic teams painstakingly searching Griffith's apartment did eventually make a breakthrough. Blood found in the bathroom belonged to Susan Rushworth, and it's believed Griffiths killed her using a hammer, the preferred weapon of his idol, Peter Sutcliffe. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton knows that crime scenes have to be handled in a specific way, or else the smallest of details could be missed. This could end with letting the killer walk free, or letting the truth about a victim be missed entirely. The fact that the final victim was identified through bloodstain shows how meticulously these crime scenes are dealt with. It would be very easy based on the fact that we knew that somebody had been killed with a crossbow to assume that that blood related to one of those two people. But these cases are examined in such detail that this extra blood spot was identified that came from a third person. One day after the charges were made against him, Griffiths appeared in court. But the killer was not yet done tormenting the families of the victims. Author and journalist Cyril Dixon remembers exactly what happened next and how Griffiths was able to shock and upset once more. Now, when Stephen Griffiths was brought into the dock, the court clerk says to him, what's your name? Everybody expected him to say Stephen Sean Griffiths. Griffiths' answer to the simple question took the courtroom by surprise. With a sense of pride, he referred to himself as the crossbow cannibal. He describes himself as the crossbow cannibal with a utter contempt for his victims, their families, the justice system, the police, but with a considerable amount of adoration of himself. Of course, this causes a stunned silence in the courtroom. That remains the case for about 30 seconds, and then I think one of the families start weeping, and all the journalists are looking at each other in disbelief, asking each other whether he really did just say that. Well, I think Stephen Griffiths felt the need to, to give himself a brand because his crimes were performance crimes. They were crimes that were enacted for the camera. And, and the fact that he imposed this name on himself rather than the media labeling him the crossbow cannibal is really significant. We have a man who is deeply, deeply narcissistic and sees himself as the center of the universe and sees nothing else at all except his own vanity. And that vanity is the hallmark of Stephen Griffith's character, that extraordinary, overweening vanity. This is somebody who wanted to be unique, wanted to stand out amongst other serial killers, and that was what that name was about. Griffiths had achieved exactly what he'd set out to do. With his self-proclamation, the case picked up immense media attention, and the nation was captivated. After he announced himself as the, the crossbow cannibal, of course, there was only one story that the whole media were talking about, and that was it. It just took over. I was just sitting there 
speaking to a colleague, we said, have you seen this? Can you believe that? At that time, we'd never seen anything like it before. Most of the time, th these courtings are, are, are kind of anodyne, sterile affairs. But there, this guy had um, you know, stood up and announced himself as this self-confessed serial killer. And really, we were just flabbergasted. One question remained. Could Griffiths really have eaten his victims? Or was that just more talk from the attention-seeking killer? Did Stephen Griffiths cannibalize his victims? I think it's a possibility because this is a guy who really didn't appear to have any boundaries around his, his killing behavior. But at the same time, he's aware of the, the power of that statement, the impact that saying he's done that will have on his reputation. And he'd come up with that, that moniker, the crossbow cannibal. So he had to claim that he'd done that even if he hadn't. Evidence found in Griffith's apartment suggested he may have actually been telling the truth. There was a certain amount of DNA evidence on Griffith's kooka, which, of course, you know, sort of tends to back it up. But also, I think it's a case of there being no real reason to disbelieve him. And Griffith's, in his interviews with the police, was more or less truthful. It was incomplete, but it was truthful. And I think as far as they knew, he didn't make up any outright lies. And if you think about Stephen Griffiths and what he tried to do, achieve notoriety by somehow concocting, contriving this series of very unpleasant, very gruesome, very shocking murders, then the idea of cannibalism would fit into that kind of jigsaw. I think when we look at the amount of time that Stephen Griffiths has spent with the, the bodies of his victims and what he's done with those bodies, he allegedly cannibalised some of the victims, he's dismembered the bodies, he's taken pictures of them. This is somebody who's quite comfortable around death, around dead bodies and, and the, the various things that come along with that. Other serial killers are, are more repulsed you know, by dead bodies, so it's, it's the crime itself it's the act that's important for some, whereas I think it's the process that was important for Stephen Griffiths. The case had grown too large for local courts and graduated to a court where serious crimes are processed. On October 15, 2010, a pretrial hearing took place at Leeds Crown Court where even more sickening details of the murders emerged. Griffiths had filmed and photographed himself in the midst of his crimes. I think Stephen Griffith's ongoing propensity to document things is, is what's going on when we look at him keeping pictures of the bodies. You know, he's keeping these mementos um, because it's, it's a way of, of, of proving what he's done. I think it's, it's demonstrating, look at me, look at how sadistic I am. I think it's part of the performance. There was a picture of Shelley bound naked in a bath. There was some um, spray paint writing on her back and there was a voiceover in which um, Griffiths is heard describing himself as this alter ego he has, a then pariah. On December 21st, 2010, the hearing began at Leeds Crown Court. Seven months after proclaiming himself the crossbow cannibal, Griffiths had yet to make a plea. Cyril Dixon was in the courtroom. He's brought in by prison van but at this stage, nobody knows whether he's gonna plead guilty or not guilty. So that adds a kind of an extra frisson of tension about the proceedings. It's also quite tense because it's the, the last court day before Christmas. 
and it's one of those days where people want to get things out of the way. After his previous performance in court, no one quite knew what to expect from Griffiths. The atmosphere was highly charged. You had a packed press bench, you had a lodging of family friends of victims, you had a lot of general members of the public. All the senior police officers were there. It was one of those cases which had really aroused a lot of passion in the local community. This time, there were no theatrics. Griffiths pleaded guilty to the murders of Suzanne Blamires, Shelley Armitage, and Susan Rushworth. He was given a life sentence and immediately sent to Wakefield Prison. During his time there, Griffiths reportedly went on a hunger strike and attempted suicide numerous times. When we look at what serial killers do once they are behind bars, what most of them will do is, is continue to try and exert power and control. Now, their options are much more limited when they're in prison. So we see them doing things like hunger strikes, self-harm, that type of thing, because that's something they have control over. They still have control over their own bodies, and, and that's something that they'll use to their advantage. There's every indication that his behaviour was just as outrageous and extravagant and um, attention-seeking as it had been in those distant years when he used to dress up in a long leather coat and leather boots and um, put baby oil on his hair just to make himself look more interesting than, than everybody else. Despite many, many pleas from her family, Stephen Griffiths never revealed the location of Susan Rushworth's body. For the families of all his victims, life will never be the same. The lives of their loved ones were taken too soon by a deadly psychopath who would do anything for his chance in the spotlight. I think Stephen Griffiths was absolutely after 15 minutes of fame. And you could see that, that he had, he'd been his own marketing manager. He'd, he'd got a brand identity. He was the crossbow cannibal. And I think he thought that he was going to get an awful lot more attention that would last for much longer than it actually has. What struck me um, as particularly unpleasant about Griffiths was the fact that he was able to choreograph everything he did. Many killers, you know, even serial killers, act upon urges which they can't control. With Griffiths, although he had that urge, he was controlling it and he was kind of embellishing the, the kind of story he was trying to write about himself. His view of the world is so bent, so deranged, if you like, that he fails to see that it doesn't fit in within any other civilised action. So if we're looking at the psychopathic traits and characteristics as being inherently evil, then, then yes, he is. If he's somebody who lacks empathy, he's somebody who shows no remorse, he's callous, he doesn't take responsibility. The murders that Stephen Griffiths committed were choices. Yeah, he chose to lure these women back to his flat. He chose to kill them. He could equally have chosen not to. What Makes a Killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by audio booms Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for audio boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. 
If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we would appreciate a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, May 1990 in Austria, a man has just been released from prison after serving 15 years behind bars. A masterful manipulator, Jack Unterweger was living the double life of a celebrated writer and a serial killer. And now that he was free, he was ready to strike again. A brutal killer who is now going to embark on what I think is one of the most horrifying killing sprees in modern European history.